0: Thank you, Will. Well, Josh and I did get to enjoy a little golf today, and I didn't hurt my shoulder. I hurt my back. And it wasn't trying to swing too hard. I got distracted like, look, a squirrel. And uh, I turned around, and my, my push cart was rolling down the hill, backwards. And it was a pretty steep hill. And I took off on a dead run. I told, I told uh, Josh, I have not ran that fast in 10 years. Uh, and I, I actually thought I was totally going to bite it. Like, I grabbed the cart and I almost stumbled. And then I thought my foot was going to get caught in the wheel. And I thought, I am going down right on the cart path face first. And, I don't know, I saved it at the end, but my back was a little sore. So, I wish I had it on (laughs) videotape. It'd be viral on TikTok by now. So, anyway, uh, we did have a great time, uh, and the weather kind of cleared for us, which was super. So, tonight, uh, we are going to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to kind of back up a little bit into the third point from last night. These four reasons why this ministry of the Word... Counseling one another, discipling one another, encouraging one another from God's Word. Why this is something that the church ought to own and do and do really well. So we're going to talk in in broader terms about the sufficiency of Scripture and then zero in on one specific passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, that helps us understand, well, how does this sufficient Word of God operate in our lives? How does God want it to, to transform our lives? Uh, I Again, I'm passionate about this topic, and I think you need to be passionate about it too, because here's the reality. Everybody in this room is already a counselor in some role, either as a parent or a Sunday school teacher or a spouse or, or a deacon or elder, or uh, maybe just as that, that friend sitting in the chair next to somebody else on a Sunday morning who you know is hurting and needs to be comforted, and you provide that, that counsel. Or your friend who calls you up on the phone and says, man, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in a situation, and I, I don't know what to do. Or your buddy who gives you a call and says, man, my, my wife and I just got into a real tizzy, and I know I need to make things right, and I'm not really sure how to go about it. We have conversations like this all of the time. And even if they're not in crisis situations like that, when we get together just as Christians in in our our home Bible studies, just our, our small groups together, there's a constant back and forth with each other about the meaning of the Word of God and its application to our lives. And though you're not doing maybe what I do when I sit at a desk in counsel, you're not doing formal counseling, you are definitely counseling one another. You are bringing the truth to bear on one another's lives and hearts and, and trying to help one another live it out. And that, that's important work. And it's work we should all be doing. So again, I'm passionate about it, not because I want everyone to do what I do, but because uh, I think you're already doing so much. The, the question is, are you doing it well? Do you understand how the Word of God can help us? And do you understand how to speak those things more and more effectively? So hopefully that's what we're trying to do again that's the growing together right like we're already doing this we want to grow together we want to grow more we want to grow into more godliness and so that's uh that's what we're that's what we're aiming at so tonight the sufficiency of scripture really the bible is god's tool in our life to to change our hearts and to transform our lives and the transformation that god desires is a transformation that only comes about through His Word. We have a little phrase we like to use uh, with our little counseling team. Not just any change will do. In other words, what God wants is worshipers. He, he doesn't want us just to be angry less. He actually wants us to, be, uh, to have hearts that are so focused on Him and on loving others that it becomes... Selfless as the word of God is heard and applied that our hearts are transformed into being selfless people who want to express their love for God and love for their neighbor by being gentle and kind. That's the change that that God wants. So not just any change uh, will do. One way that God describes that is 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he says we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The tra- transformation that God wants is transformation into Christ-likeness. And Paul's obviously, they're not talking about every individual Christian having a literal vision of the glory of the Lord as a means of transformation. How do we behold the glory of the Lord specifically in this age, right? We come... To the scriptures. And we read about. The God of the scriptures. And we see God manifested to us completely. And explained in the person. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we behold. The glory of the Lord. And as we do that. And do it well. And do it deeply. It transforms us. Because of the work of the spirit. So the means of transformation. Is the word of God. Uh, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of that transformation. And that's why Paul delineates that force right in that text. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, as Christians, I I think, uh, especially Christians, we're in like-minded churches, all of us, right? And we're committed to the Bible as the inerrant and authoritative word of God. We believe it's reliable and true from beginning to end. We embrace that truth that God's Word is the standard by which we must test all other truth claims. Scripture has to be the, the foundation and the final authority for everything that we hold true. And, and those axioms must dominate our view of Scripture. That has to be what we believe. But it also has to inform our perspective on, on spiritual growth and transformation and how, how does God use His Word to help me deal with with the very real problems of life. That's where this question of sufficiency comes in, right? Is it really adequate? Is it really sufficient to help people with all of the problems of life? Is the Bible in and of itself, with the Spirit's help, yes, sufficient to furnish us with a complete perspective on our circumstances, conditions, relationships, problems, etc. Does the Bible even make this claim? And, And can we really, and we've talked a little bit about this, right? Can we really be serious about saying the Bible is sufficient when many of the problems that we deal with in life are not in the Bible, right? So PTSD, ADHD, I can list out a lot of things here, right? There's a sense in which we don't even really see pornography in the Bible. We don't see something as specific as, say, transgenderism, right? We see lots of things about sexual immorality, and we've talked a little bit about depression and panic attacks, and, boy, there's just so many things that we're dealing with in our world that, in some sense, we don't see specifically talked about in the Bible can we really can we really make that claim that the Bible is sufficient to help us understand and have a perspective and walk through situations like that that we can't even find in our concordance well let's define it and let's think through some of this together uh, tonight what what do we mean when we say the scripture is sufficient because again it the Bible doesn't mention problems that we, Label specifically today. Um, And we are quick to usually affirm its authority, but we're not quite as sure what we might mean by this. So here's a great definition, and I think it's in your notes, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. That's a, that's a great definition. It's, it's in a little antiquated language perhaps, right? But... Boy, I think it's, it's probably as good a definition of the sufficiency of Scripture that I have ever found. And it really says that we mean the Bible is an adequate guide for all matters of faith and conduct. Everything God has called us to be, right? And we, we've seen that in a couple of passages. We're going to review some of that in a little bit. I think by and large, again, in, the, in sort of the evangelical culture of, of America and beyond, Many Christians don't believe this anymore. They uh, often just assume that something more than Scripture is needed to help us cope with problems in a modern world. It's not usually stated blatantly and uh, uh, in an an attacking sort of way, although interestingly, Nicole said she had an old friend who posted something on uh, social media today, she read it at dinner it just said, the Bible is not sufficient to help people deal with trauma. And she had a couple little paragraphs, which were really a bunch of spiritual gobbledygook. Uh, it didn't really say, say anything that was helpful, but I thought, wow, that's actually surprising. I rarely see somebody make such a blatant statement that the, the truth of God's word is inadequate. To help people deal with trauma in their life. Um, so, but though people don't often make such uh, blatant statements like that, I do think there's a lot of ways in which we sort of don't take up the mantle of saying no. The Bible is sufficient, and if if it is sufficient, that has that has implications. So, what are some of the ways that we maybe miss? Uh, the implications of the sufficiency of scripture. Um, when I was putting this together uh, a while back, I, someone someone came into my office and said, hey, I was going through some books, just getting rid of some things. Uh, thought you might like these. So they throw a book on my table on suicide. It was a Christian book. It was by a Christian author, Christian publisher, um, talking about suicide. And so I started thumbing through it. I thought, oh, there might be some helpful principles in here. There's not a lot of great material on that. So I thought there might be something helpful. It was page seventy nine before there was a single Bible verse in that book. Uh, Christian publisher, Christian author, or, well, yeah. So that's sad to me. Like God's word says so much about the 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 pains of life that might cause a person to despair to that point, and it says so much about. Uh, the rightness and wrongness of those thoughts and feelings and and actions certainly, and yet uh, you know, almost eighty pages in before the actual truth is brought to bear on that difficult difficult topic. So, what are some ways that maybe, though not blatantly denying sufficiency, we, we subtly undermine it in the way that we think or or the way that we operate as Christians? One way, uh, self help books. where there is no. Shortage of what I call self help books um, available to us today. Uh, uh, Of course, I mean, I suppose if you went Christian self help books on Christianbook.com or or Amazon or something, you probably uh, would find out how many there are. I should do that, I think. But from every topic, from parenting to finances to leadership, uh, all kinds of, of, of books, you can find self help books. Now, what self-help books do, when I say self-help book, I mean, let's not talk about this topic necessarily in exactly the way the Bible talks about it. Let's just talk about it in, in practical wisdom ways. And they don't bring the scriptures in to describe the topic, to to give God's wisdom on the topic. Uh, and so when I say that, it's kind of like, you know, seven things every husband wishes his wife knew about him, right? And, and we talk about personality things, and we talk about desires or needs or whether we even have those, uh, right? But it's, it's not bringing the truth to bear on it. It's just practical advice that isn't rooted and grounded in the scriptures. When, when we absorb books like that or promote a material like that, it teaches us to place our confidence in human wisdom and not the truth of Scripture. Though we don't blatantly deny the sufficiency of Scripture, we can subtly undermine it by the way in which we we try to learn and deal with certain topics in our life. That might be how we undermine it as individuals, just thinking through issues. Uh, On a a ministry-wide level, the same thing can happen with what I have here in the notes as pastoral pragmatism, which is really just sort of that Mindset that the church needs to dumb down the truth uh, so that people will be attracted to uh, our churches and come and hear the truth. Or uh, the ministry looks more like a business model than it does a ministry model. It focuses on entertainment rather than preaching, perhaps. there's There's lots of ways that pragmatism can sneak into the church. But again, it subtly undermines... The truth that God's word is powerful to transform people's lives. I don't need a a gimmick or a marketing ploy or entertainment for God's word to do its thing. And if we're, you know, whatever you attract somebody with is what they're going to want on an ongoing basis. And if what we really want them to get on an ongoing basis is the powerful teaching of God's word, well, we just need to do that, right? So anyway, that's we could talk a lot more about that. That's kind of a philosophy of ministry thing uh, more than it is uh, anything else. But what's another way that we can subtly uh, undermine sufficiency of Scripture uh, as individual Christians? What I have here in your notes know, is spiritual mysticism. What do, I, what do I mean by spiritual mysticism? Well, the idea which is common and kind of manifests itself in various ways in different places, but it's the idea that we should listen for God to speak to us personally in some mystical way about uh, the, the things that we want in life or the things that we want to change in life. Or it could also manifest itself in a way where we think, if I just pray about this enough, God will change me. Or I often hear that the other way. People will come into the counseling office and say, I don't understand. I have asked God to take this desire away and he hasn't done it. And they're, they're looking for just kind of a spiritual zap. Some kind of, you know, uh, God lightning bolt to, to transform them. They're looking for some kind of mystical experience and that's not actually the way most people change. I, I have seen people and Maybe even experience myself at times some some changes that happen really fast uh, and were really a work of God. And for that I'm I'm thankful. But that's, as we're gonna see a little bit over the next few nights, that's not actually how God changes us most of the time. But what's happening when people are are looking for God to speak to them personally or to experience spiritual change in some mystical way, is is there subtly undermining the reality that it's the word of God to to that we need to be looking at, that we need to be looking to transform us. This is uh, how God transforms us, is by His Spirit, through His Word. And so, um, this is the tool and the agent that He has given to us for this transformation. So, again, I'm not saying that God is not mysterious and spiritual, and that we... Uh, don't have experiences with God that are real and genuine. I'm not saying that, so don't don't take me too far down that road um, in your mind. But, but I'm just saying, when we seek God, we need to seek Him in His Word. And when we seek transformation, we need to not expect to have some uh, mystical experience, but rather uh, let His Word do that work. And we're going to describe a little bit how God's Word does that work uh, in us uh, over the next couple nights. Another way that we can undermine uh, Scripture's sufficiency, our culture contributes this one, really, is tolerance and and political correctness. So um, there's a a kind of tolerance and political correctness that requires us sometimes to talk about the world's problems in the way that the world accepts, right? So we, we kind of all get the whole cancel culture at this point, I think. Right? So, um, some of that trickles down into, into these areas of, of mood disorders. Right? So, um, it's almost anathema culturally to, to suggest that anxiety or depression or uh, a child's behavior that might be labeled ADHD has roots in our thinking and our spiritual lives. That those could be moral issues and not only uh, something else, right? It's almost culturally anathema to say things like that. So I often will hear um, people talk about, well, Christians should not think that the problems we experience today in a modern world are really spoken to by the scriptures, kind of like what Nicole's friend was saying there. And I hear that a lot with trauma and PTSD and that sort of thing. But I see it sometimes in, in... Ways like this, like, you won't, you won't think less of a person if they see a doctor for a broken bone. So why do you think less of a person who sees a therapist for depression? Someone will say, I've had people say things just like that to me. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't think less of them for seeing a therapist. So that's a, that's a false premise um, and a straw man argument. And, but second of all, uh, let's back it up. Those two things aren't equal. A broken bone, you can do an x-ray. And depression, there's no test. There's no... They're not equals, right? You're comparing apples and oranges. So, again, we talked about... It was in the Q&A last night. There might be a physical component to depression at times. But very, very rare and difficult to prove, if not impossible in most cases. So, um, again... Saying that we think less of people, that should be totally wrong. That, that shouldn't actually be the case. But let's not, in the, in the name of just trying to think the way the world thinks about these things, get, get wrapped up in, in falling into this trap of only speaking about it the way the world wants us to speak about it, rather than thinking, well, how does the Scripture speak about these things? Because it does, right? By, as the Westminster Confession says, it can be deduced from Scripture, uh, by good and necessary consequence, we can find these truths uh, in the scriptures. And then last, the last way we do it is kind of related to the, the previous illustration of tolerance and political correctness, the presumption of of medical causes. And I, I know that's kind of a can of worms in many contexts, and we talked about it last night in the Q&A, for which I'm very thankful. Uh, uh, but here's the the thing, so often... Problems in life, like let's just say depression and ADHD. Two problems that are very common in our culture, that are talked about a lot. There is this presumption that those things are caused by uh, chemical imbalances or some dysfunction. But that is a presumption. In fact, it is if, if you read the medical research, it's a theory is what it is. It's the theory of chemical imbalance. There's no test. There's no way to measure it. Um, I think some people are helped when they take medications and for that I'm thankful and we, that's fine, do that. Um, But the fact that some people are helped doesn't necessarily mean we've identified a cause in some uh, tangible, physical, medical way. It just means you've taken a medication that helps you feel better. Good. Very good. Uh, But We haven't identified a cause. If you uh, understood just even how the DSM-5, the way they describe emotional disorders and all the psychiatric uh, problems and whatever, most of them are descriptive. In other words, they're describing symptoms. And I am so thankful for the work of clinical psychologists and psychiatrists who've done all this research and... And made observations about patterns and categorized these things. It can be so helpful uh, for us to, to, to see these things described accurately. But in most cases, that's all the diagnosis is, is someone fits this description. And so there's always a presumption that those who have this description have a physical problem because they give them a medication that does something to them physically and they feel better but it's a presumption. So, um, again, it's, like I said, it's kind of cultural anathema to suggest otherwise. And and I think as Christians, we need to learn how to be very gracious with people, identify with them and their suffering, love them to pieces, not be judgmental, but help bring the word of God to their, their lives and hearts. So, um, and not, not just assume, oh, uh, this must be the case um, maybe I'll throw uh, Josh under the bus he actually has a very good article on that topic that I'm just going to refer you to him um, I have some as well but he sent me his a, a couple months ago and I thought oh that's really good so um, yeah if someone has a, a question about that talk to talk to Josh so what does the Bible say so these are just ways that you know again we authority, inspiration of scripture yes. Sufficiency of Scripture—we usually want to go yes, but then uh, sometimes some of the ways we think and operate don't always uh, aren't always consistent with that. Where does the Bible say that it's sufficient? To what degree does it claim that? And it's an important question. We saw just a snippet of it uh, last night, but if we started with just Psalm one nineteen, what a great place to start about how just thoroughly powerful, the Bible speaks into our lives and changes us. How shall a young man uh, change his way? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have hidden in, in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Just a couple of verses from Psalm 119. We read together 2 Peter 1 uh, last night as well, I think, where Peter says, In verse 3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Uh, So, uh, by His glory and excellence, verse 4, He's granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Those statements are just so powerful, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And of course, the knowledge of Him comes through his, his Word, right? And His Word is described here as His precious and great promises that help us become partakers of the divine nature, escape the world's corruption. Th- these are amazing statements. It's, it's no wonder that Jesus, in praying for us the night before His crucifixion, said it so simply, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. There's so many places in Scripture where the power of God's word to transform us is described. Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It penetrates into the deepest recesses of our inner man. That's what he's saying. Like when we really allow God's spirit to take his word, it opens us up and it discerns our thoughts and intentions. No creatures hidden from his sight. The word of God exposes them to God. First Peter 2.2 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Grow into maturity. And then, Psalm 19, again, we looked at briefly last night. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What a great description of what God's Word is. Right? It's, it's law, testimony, precepts, commandment, rules. What characterizes the Word of God. It's it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And then what it accomplishes in our souls, reviving our souls, making us wise, rejoicing our heart, enlightening our eyes, warning us, helping us discern our errors. This is uh, how the Bible describes its power, its sufficiency, I believe. But we're going to look in more detail at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 because uh, because here God not only makes a statement about the sufficiency of his word, he describes for us in that context how to use his word. How does God desire us to profit, to benefit, to allow the word of God to be useful in our lives for this transformation that he has designed it to, to make in our lives. So turn, if you got a copy of the scriptures, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's, a, it's an interesting context, 2 Timothy. It's, it's one of Paul's later letters. He's writing to Timothy, who he's left to shepherd the church in Ephesus. And uh, he tells Timothy, man, things are going to get rough. Ministry is not going to be easy in your context, Timothy. It's the last days and difficult times will come. And he he describes uh, people being lovers of self and boastful and arrogant, disobedient to parents, irreconcilable, malicious, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, etc. But look what he says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. He's actually saying, boy, you're going to have people who are putting on a show of religion holding to a form of godliness, but their lives are going to be an absolute wreck. This is what uh, life's going to be like in the last days, Timothy. And so uh, he goes on to say people are going to be deceived and they're going to embrace teachings that are contrary to Scripture, and this is going to add to to the, uh, the complication of doing ministry among them. But then he says in verse 10, but... But you, Timothy, you you have followed my teaching and my conduct and my purpose and my faith and my patience, and you were there in my persecutions and sufferings that I endured. In verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and imposters, they're going to proceed from bad to worse. And then he gives this instruction to Timothy in verse 14. You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned. And become convinced of. Knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood. You have known the sacred writings. He had learned them from his mother and grandmother. And from Paul himself. You have known the sacred writings. Which are able to give you the wisdom. That leads to salvation through faith. Which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. And profitable. Useful. Beneficial he says for four things teaching reproof correction training in righteousness and here's the statement of its sufficiency so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work i want i want to take the time to un- unpack the content and the intent of this passage that describes in detail i think the nature of scripture and specifically how God has designed it to profit us, to complete us, to make us adequate for every good work. Everything God has called us to be and do, these inspired, sacred writings does. It is sufficient to transform us into that. So let's, let's look at just some of the details, kind of weave through uh, these few verses here. Notice, first of all, that Paul describes the Bible as sacred writings. So I'm 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 also just trying to inspire you. Like, man, I want to know the Bible like crazy. Like if, if you get anything out of this, I want to know the Bible as as much as I can so that my soul will be edified and so that I can edify others. There, there there's no other way to do it. And this word here, this sacred writings language is Uh, It is exactly the the kind of thing that reminds Timothy how precious this really is. So precious. The word sacred here can mean holy or set apart. But it's it's not the Hagias word that we normally translate holy or that we think of as holy. It's the, the holy word that is sometimes translated consecrated. Uh, so it's, it's something that's set apart for a special use and it doesn't speak so much to its character like the other holy word. It speaks to its standing or relationship. Something is sacred in this sense that, that Paul's using the word here because of its special close connection with God particularly. And so you see the temple articles, you know, like the lampstand and the showbread and all that stuff. Those are the sacred articles, the consecrated things that they use in the temple. Even the temple itself is called the holy temple, but it's always the consecrated, the sacred temple. And it's a sacred place because it's the place where God dwells. It's the place where God's people come to meet God, right? And so it's sacred in this sense because of its close connection to God, because of its relationship to Him. Well, when Paul calls the Bible the sacred writings, he's saying these writings are precious because they're the very words of God to us. God has spoken. You think back to when you were in in junior high and there was that special little someone, right? Billy or Susie or whatever her name was or his name that, that junior high crush. And that junior high crush writes you a note in class and they slip it to you across the aisle when the teacher's not looking. This is bad, children. This is really, really bad. But, oh, you got that note. Your parents remember. <laughs> you got that note and you read it. And you took it home, right? And you read it again. And then you slept with it under your pillow. And then the next morning... You read it again, right? Why? Because your junior high crush gave it to you. That's why. And you read it again and again and again and imagined what they were thinking and you did all kinds of crazy, stupid stuff that you children should not do because of its intimate connection to that person who meant so much to you, right? Who Whose name you can't even remember now. Well, I mean, if our hearts can get so wrapped around something as significant as a little love note from a junior high crush, how much more should our hearts get wrapped around the, the greatest, largest love note ever written, right? The, the very love of God is communicated to us in the pages of Scripture. His intimate affection for us and His glorious plan to redeem us and welcome us into his presence forever right like these this is sacred sacred writings paul says he tells timothy it is a book unlike any other book and then he says these sacred writings are able right they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation that that word able is the the dunamis word it's the word that means power and ability This Word of God has the power and ability to make you wise unto salvation, to stir your heart and mind toward holiness, right? To energize you to that very purpose, that living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword Word of God, right? It is not just words on a page. It is living and active and personal, and again, it, it, it dives and dissects us into the very inner recesses of our being. This word is the Holy Spirit's a tool, means for working in our mind and heart. And what a privilege it is for us to read it for the good of our own soul. What a privilege it is that we get to speak it into other people's lives for the good of their soul. And it's powerful. It's not you that has to be powerful. It's not you that has to be wise. Right? It's the word of God. What a great privilege in any and every context. And again, I'm saying this is important because you have so many contexts already where you minister to one another. In your homes, at the dinner table, with your children, with your kids in Sunday school, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, And just friends, skilled spiritual friends in the pew, talking to people who are hurting, right? Or who have questions. It's sacred, it's powerful, and and it's true for all of it, right? All scripture, all of it, down to the the very last jot and tittle, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, right? Not a jot or tittle uh, shall pass away, a letter or stroke shall pass away until all is accomplished. It's the scriptures that are inspired, not the writers. We often talk about inspired writers, but really it's the scriptures, the, the words of God that are given to us that are inspired. What does that word inspired mean? Well, it means God breathed or breathed out by God, that the men involved who were writing the scripture were just agents of God's very breath, as it were. So, moved by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter one twenty one says, they spoke from God. Or Acts 3.18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, He is thus fulfilled. So, you know, we've, we forget this, that the majority of people in the ancient world, when the Bible was originally written, were actually illiterate. And because they were illiterate, they didn't have the same kind of respect for the written word that you and I have. Like, like, I can read. If I want to know something, I look it up. Right? But they didn't They didn't have that. And so for them, reality and truth was something that they, they had to physically and, and audibly hear and verify for their own selves. Right? And so for Paul to say that all scriptures breathed out by God, it was a way for Paul to say, hey, no, no, you need to th- think of this, these written words that people are, are speaking out to you as the very words of God, as though you were hearing them audibly. That's, that's the idea. So breathed out by God here for the written word, especially in the ancient world. Uh, again, what, what an amazing privilege. I always think it's funny that the word actually means breathed out by God, which technically we should tra- shouldn't we translate that expired? But the expired scriptures doesn't sound very good, does it? So we went with inspired because it works better. No, um, it's still a good translation. I'm just I'm just joking. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. You're a tough crowd. Here's here's what he says though: uh, right, sacred, powerful, all of it breathed out by God, and it's useful or profitable, right? And it's profitable or useful. That's a great word. It, It means that God has given his word to us so that we would profit from it, so that we would benefit from it, that it would be useful to us, and specifically useful for the ends for which God has designed it, right? That's a beautiful thing. And what are the ends for which God has designed the Word of God uh, to be useful in our lives? Well, it's not for our amusement or critical analysis or satisfy our intellectual curiosity or win theological debates. It's useful to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. And and we can sum that up in different ways, right? Like Titus 1.1 says, you know, Paul's writing another letter to another young servant of the Lord, and he says, uh, I'm writing as an apostle for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. There it is in a simple phrase. Uh, Leading to godliness. The truth leads to godliness, right? So teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness is just the sort of the expanded way to say the usefulness, the profit that God desires for us is godliness. And so it's imperative that we understand how this operates. That's kind of what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. How does this useful profit, this great benefit that God has designed the word of God to have, how, how does that happen? How does this teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness happen Let's start with the teaching. And I think this is the thing that most of us do really, really well. Bible-believing churches like ours, we do this really, really well. We have solid doctrinal statements. We have good Bible teachers. We embrace sound doctrine and biblical principles of all, all the key things and the nature of God and man and sin and salvation. We got the gospel down. We understand what holiness is. But again, I, I often see kind of a disconnect. In, in churches that betray this subtle belief. The Bible's good for salvation, and it's it's good for doctrine, but there's still only certain kinds of problems that I'm not so sure the Bible can teach me about. But the Bible is comprehensive, right? As we've seen, it, it has all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, it's not always easy to, to figure out, like, where does the Bible talk about such things, right? So we... This one might be easy for you. I might even ask for some response here. You ready? Okay. We might not find the word depression in the Bible, but what words do we find in Scripture that describe depression? Downcast. Melancholy in old translations. Despair. Darkened eyes. That's good sadness sorrow right alone loneliness crying what was that losing heart losing heart crushed in spirit boy when you when you step back and ask yourself where does the Bible talk about depression it its language actually is very rich and the topic is talked about, broadly, all over the place. And so, what, again, that means it has a lot to say to us about a topic, a, a modern topic, where some people say, well, you're not going to find depression in the Bible. I've had people say that to me many, many times. I'm like, nah, I think I do. Let me show you. Let's talk about that. So, it's comprehensive. It does talk about all things that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't always use the modern language that people would like it to use but because it's comprehensive we need to know it and we fail miserably when we when we don't dig in there to try to figure out how does god think how does god describe how does god prescribe things for people who struggle in these ways teaching has a goal of course and that's another way that i think sometimes we miss it we teach we teach doctrine but we We don't teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you as Jesus said in the uh, Great Commission which we talked about on Sunday night. So uh, that is uh, the beautiful thing is that the teaching of God's word is not designed just to help us know things. It's designed the the teaching of the word if we're doing it well helps us become what God has called us to be. To not just know the things about God which is good and Really rooted, it roots us in the becoming part, but then it is designed for us to become something else. So that's the teaching and, and again, I think normally we do that well, although we, we're not always careful about teaching uh, about things uh, in the way that God's Word teaches it and and, fail, and we fail by lack by grasping onto the world's descriptions. So that's the teaching part. Second. The second useful purpose of God's word is reproof or conviction. I, I, I like and prefer the word conviction for this, this word because uh, I think in English the word reproof, uh, most of the time when we use that or hear that, we think of something that is more like a rebuke. And that's not this word. The, a rebuke is a real thing, but it's a different, it's a different word in the New Testament. A rebuke really means like pointing out something that's wrong. That's wrong. That's a rebuke. Just to tell somebody something is wrong. Um, This word uh, is not just telling somebody that it's wrong. It's showing them how it's wrong. Why it's wrong. And that it it is, and that you specifically are wrong. Uh, Wrong in what you're thinking or wrong in how you're uh, expressing yourself or wrong in how you're living. So How how does the Bible use this word? So conviction also has its baggage, right? Because sometimes we we use the word conviction and we're like, I have a strong feeling about that doctrine, right? That's my conviction. Uh, So that word's got baggage too. But the reason I like it is because this is a legal term, this word conviction or reproof. It's a legal term that is used to communicate a judgment passed in a court of law. And so a judge slams the gavel on the table and he passes down the conviction. In other words, we have heard the case, the evidence has been presented, and we are declaring this man convicted, you know, guilty. That's that's the idea. And so Jesus uses this word actually in John 8:46 when the Pharisees come and they try to accuse him of things, right? They're always trying to trap him in his words, blah blah blah. And Jesus in John 8:46 says which one of you convicts me of sin? It's translated convict there. It's a great statement. He's saying, who here can present the evidence and lay out the case that I'm in the wrong? And of course, nobody could, right? That, that's why he used that word. Um, so, and uh, he, Jesus also uses that word in Revelation 3 in the letter that he penned through John, to the church in Laodicea. And in that church to the the believers in Laodicea, remember this is the, you're neither hot nor cold church, Laodicea. Right? I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind. And naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And there's all kinds of stuff packed in there. But listen to what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove. Now there it's translated reprove. I reprove and discipline. What, what has Jesus just done? He's laid out the case against them. You say this, but this is true, and you know it, right? I mean, the watching eyes of our sovereign Savior. He lays out the case and proves them guilty. And, of course, he's calling them to repentance. That's the the purpose of it. So it's possible, actually, for us, others, to be convicted in a biblical sense. The evidence has been presented, and my, my guilt has been exposed. But I don't feel bad about it at all. So that, this word can't be talking about how, how we feel bad, how we experience conviction or feelings of guilt. Um, so we need to be careful again, not to let that uh, improper thinking of conviction pop in. But again, this is also why it can be it is so important to begin to think about life's problems and the problems that we encounter and that we deal with. Think about it—the way the Bible thinks about it—to define our terms, even the way the Bible defines terms. So, when uh, when I'm working with folks that struggle with substance abuse, right? Again, I, I don't really see the phrase "substance abuse" in here, and I don't really see the word "addiction" in here either, right? Addiction is another word in our English culture or our American culture it has certain baggage. It has, sometimes in in our thinking, and our use of it, it has uh, assumptions, right? One of those assumptions that I'll bet every one of you can finish the phrase, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, right? Okay, so is that how the Bible talks about that, being in bondage To alcohol. Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, some of you were drunkards. He says you're you're drunkards and immoral. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified by by the gospel, basically, right? So Paul's description of those who were in bondage or addicted, perhaps, we want to use that word, to alcohol, he says, can be delivered and cleansed, right? Now, uh, I mean, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that some people, you can mean different things by that phrase, right? So once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You might be meaning by that, well, I have struggled with this sin for so long uh, that I'm i am still tempted, and I find myself tempted repeatedly and regularly. And if that's what you mean by it, thats that's okay. So I'm not saying throw out the phrase and Never use it and judge people who do. Please don't do that. <laughs> Enter into their suffering. Come alongside them lovingly, but help them see God has so much hope for you. Yes, the word of God says this is wrong. Stop yielding yourself as servants to unrighteousness. right? But let me come alongside you and help you and strengthen you because God says such were some of you. You can be changed. You can be transformed. right? And God wants to do this increasingly glorious work in your heart and soul. And so, let's let's get down to business and study his word, not think about your life and your problems the way you have in the past, but begin to think about your life and your problems and your choices and your relationships the way God's word tells you to. And glorious things begin to happen. Right? Because we're because we're now we're not talking about the problem the way the world talks about the problem. We're bringing real conviction we're laying out the case the way God lays out the case and we're talking about the problem the way God talks about the problem. That's why that's so important. So and, and again don't don't miss the significance of it, right? This is why God gave us the Bible. This is the purpose for which He has given us the truth. It's to be useful, beneficial it's to profit us in this way that we're taught what is right and then actually shown when we need to be corrected, shown when we're wrong about how we think and how we respond and how we relate and how we choose and what we yield our lives to, right? It brings that conviction. And when we talk about problems in life the way God talks about it, it brings that conviction. It's the reason of the four that he gives us here, that he gave us the scriptures. There's lots of reasons. These aren't the only four reasons, uh, but these are good reasons for our topic to talk about. Number three, the third useful, profitable, beneficial purpose for which God has given us the scripture is correction. This word correction means to put someone back on his feet, basically. To, to stand something up straight and give them a, a, you know, make their spine straight. is kind of the idea. Like, boom, okay, now you're solid. That's the idea. It's a great word. Uh, J. Adams says, correction is God picking us up, brushing us off, turning us around, and giving us a shove in the right direction of course all by the scriptures ministered in the power of the spirit what a, it's a great picture i think uh, and it's a powerful word and it's basically saying that the bible doesn't just teach us what is right and it doesn't just teach us what it's wrong that's the teaching and the conviction but it teaches us how to make things right how to pursue what is right and good gives us that movement in the right direction and i uh, mean i've I've got some stuff in here that I'm going to go skip over for the for the sake of time tonight but so many people come in for help and they've they've never really thought about what does repentance look like in this situation? What should confession involve in my situation? Confession to God, very often confession to others, right? How to again how to make things right, this correction relationships get broken, right? Feelings are hurt. Uh, there's, there's so much brokenness in relationships. And even married couples. I'm working with a couple right now that's been married uh, over 20 years. Over 20 years. And Lord willing, they are having a glorious conversation about 20 years of sin tonight. Uh, that's actually what I hope is happening. Uh, maybe even now. Because they're going to go on vacation. You don't want to have that talk on vacation. <laughs> right? 20 years of sin and they've just never really understood how to confess it to one another and how to reconcile with one another. And I believe they are on the precipice of their relationship totally changing and and finally freeing themselves of all this tension when they truly forgive each other. And it's taken a number of weeks to help them kind of think through that. And they're like, yes, no, I don't think I've ever actually confessed that sin. And the other party is like yeah no i don't think i've ever forgiven them. and if i did i had no idea what it meant so yes we need to do this and we have walked them through this how does the bible say this whole nasty circumstance can be corrected it's a, it's a great great word and then of course correction confession and forgiveness and that, i mean you got to have intention going forward right I mean these, these this couple isn't going to just say hey I asked you to forgive me can't we move on they're not doing that right their intention now is to be a totally different husband and wife going forward and, and we're already seeing that in their lives it's just uh, marvelous work that God's doing so this this correction that the Bible talks about is a transformative kind of thing and we're going to talk a little bit more about this on Wednesday night but think of it in terms of Ephesians 4. You put off the old man, and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the correction is that putting on the new man. It's it's embracing and adopting a whole new manner of life, which starts here, right, in your desires and your thinking. But it doesn't end there. It includes how you how you live going forward. And then last, the last, the fourth profit benefit here that God talks about is training in righteousness. This word training uh, is the word that's used in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Training in righteousness is discipline in righteousness. It's that word, paideia. And it's used to talk about, uh, uh, well, parenting, right? Bringing up your children. So I like to illustrate it this way, and then we'll talk about what does that mean for me overcoming my sin. So, Those of you who are or have been parents, if your four-year-old child sitting at the dinner table says, I want some milk. You say, say please, or how do you ask, or whatever your phrase is, right? Um, But everybody had a phrase. Every parent had a way of addressing that issue. A selfish child making demands. You tell them to say please. And gloriously, after that first evening, they always say please. It's amazing. It's a miracle. No, it's not. Because your child needs training. That's why we call it child training, right? You need to teach them over and over and over again to say their pleases and thank yous and a thousand other things, right? So that's training in righteousness. So when when the when the God gives us the word of God, it's profitable, it's useful for teaching. Proof, correction, and training in righteousness. He doesn't want us just to know what is right and to get on the right path. He wants us to practice it over and over and over again until it becomes our character. That's the word, right? That's what we want, godliness. Until it becomes a matter of godliness at the level of our desires, at the level of our, our thinking, and then ultimately, obviously, at the level of our obedience, right? Here's the reality. We are always being trained towards something, beloved. You are always practicing something in your life. And it's either God-glorifying things that express love for God and love for your neighbor that you do as an expression of worship or perhaps it's selfish things, right? That turn your heart just towards yourself. What are you practicing? In your life? How are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of of godliness? How are you doing that? This is where I think often the process breaks down. And we're not always intentional ourselves, which then makes us not always effective with others. And it's amazing how simply and thoroughly parenting illustrates how we ought to be growing, right? I mean, actually, Jesus says this all the time, like, oh, I wish Christians would be more like little children, (laughs) right? I mean, he, he says it. So there's some dependence in there. There's some simplicity in there. But, man, it's true. We need to discipline ourselves just like we train our children. We need to train our own hearts and minds so that we don't think the wrong thoughts. Instead, we train our minds to think the right thoughts. We're going to talk more about this On on Wednesday night, so um, I'm not going to, oh, I'm just desperate to give a good illustration of this, but I'm going to wait until uh, Wednesday night. We're going to talk more about this process of putting off and renewing the mind and putting on. And the putting on part is really a sister truth to this idea of training ourselves in righteousness, where we, we purposely and intentionally practice godliness over and over and over, until it becomes our character. And I'll bet, I'll bet, if you looked around the room right now, there is someone, some couple in this room that you have known for a while. I don't know who they are, but you do. An older couple. And you just like, that couple is so sweet on each other. I've watched them. I've watched them interact. They still hold hands. He's so kind. They're so thoughtful. I hope I'm like that when I'm older. I can guarantee you that that couple has trained themselves to be thoughtful and kind and patient and gentle and sacrificial in so many ways. And they've, they've practiced it until... It's become what you see today, their character, right? It's their character. God does that in us when we take the word of God, we listen to it, we learn what's right, and we allow it to convict us about the things that need to change, right? And we allow it to instruct us on how those things need to change, right? And then we don't just stop there. We keep doing it over and over and over until it becomes our character. I deal with husbands all the time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her, right? The sacrificial love of our Savior. That's how we need to love our wives, guys, right? I'll read that passage we'll talk about it and I'll say to him, what do you need to do? What do you need to do today? I need to love my wife more. Yeah, you knew that before you came in. What do you need to do today? It's often, we already... We so very often already know the teaching part, right? So just telling them to love their wife more isn't going to help them grow, right? We begin to talk about that in terms of conviction and correction and training and righteousness. So when they leave my office, they don't just get told to love their wife more. They get four ways they're going to love their wife every day this week, right? And do them over and over and over again. Report back, what that does to your heart, right? And they're going to probably do that every week they meet with me. That's the training in righteousness. So, and and again, you don't have to be a pastor or a counselor to encourage one another that way. Guys, you get get together for coffee on Saturday morning. No coffee, guys. You get together for large amounts of bacon and brats and biscuits and gravy on Saturday morning. Have those conversations with you, with each other. Hey, guys, what's What's three things I could do for my wife today that would please her, show my love for her, show my care for her, and everybody comes up with one? And just go home and do it. And just purpose to do that over and over and over again until it becomes your character. That's, that's training in righteousness. Now, I haven't talked a lot about, well, what's the motive for all that? Like, how do I, how do I stay the course? Training in righteousness, that, that can be really hard. What's the motive for that? And we're going to talk about that. Again, I think in the session on Wednesday night, big part of Wednesday night. Okay, that's why God's given us the Word of God to accomplish those purposes, to benefit us, to profit us in those ways, and we need to intentionally figure out in our lives, in my problems, how do I how do I do that, and how do I pursue that? Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you for your Word. Uh, help us uh, to uh, really be convinced deeply how uh, sacred precious it is, and help us to think carefully and intentionally about how you desire us, uh, not just to know things, not just to know what is right, but how to correct our hearts and minds and behaviors and be changed and transformed by it as we practice the truth uh, again and again and again until it becomes that spiritual fruit, that character uh, that you desire to produce in us. Uh, Make the word of God useful profitable, beneficial for us in that way, uh, in whatever way uh, we need it to be, uh, tonight and forever, till you come, amen. (laughs)
1: Um, Okay, well, you guys can continue to come back to your seats, just, you're fine, don't worry about standing there, we just want to get the conversation rolling. Um, Do you have one to start off?
2: I was just going to say, we trust you can use your ears and your hands at the same time, so.
1: The same thing we tell the kids, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Over a long period of time of training. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and start with this one. A question on the topic of the use of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling for all of our needs. Um, The question is, Brian, do you often have Christians come for counsel and get frustrated or disappointed when you reach for your Bible to counsel their needs?
0: Yeah. Uh, so the way we initiate counseling relationships uh, at Faith Bible Church, they fill out an intake form that describes that's what we're going to do, and then I do an initial interview that that reminds them that's what we're going to do, and uh, and and we'll actually say if that's not what you're looking for, then maybe this isn't for you. Um, one thing that will sometimes happen is someone will get engaged in the process and they're seeing another kind of therapist of some kind who's talking about their problems a different way and they like that more than what they are hearing from us from the Bible or in their mind they think this is too simplistic I, I like these complex explanations and we usually just say you know you, you should choose we, we're, we're operating a certain way that God's word is sufficient and, uh, and his truth can help you have the right perspective and learn how to honor him if this is your standard of truth um, we, we think you need to choose, and we're just gracious with them, and tell them to choose their standard of truth. And if, and many actually are. Well, thank you, thank you for pointing that out. Bye. <laughs> that, that happens. And like I said last night, not everybody who needs help wants help. Not everybody who wants help wants biblical help. And so,
2: yeah. Uh, is there an obvious approach when when someone like that individual uh, comes and says, "Well, I already know what's in Scripture. I've, I've maybe I've tried it, and it doesn't seem to be working, addressing my need. I need something more." So
0: understanding those four principles that I just outlined is good. You can actually describe that to them. If you've tried it, um, God doesn't tell you to try godliness. God tells you to practice godliness as a lifestyle. And we don't do godliness. We don't follow God's wisdom and word and will and ways if it works. If you get out of it what you want to get out of it. So you do it, you should be doing it because it pleases God. So I mentioned right there at the end. We're going to talk on Wednesday night about what's the motive? Like how do I keep going at it? And and so I, I will have that conversation, well, if, if that's how people feel, I've tried it and it doesn't work, or I've tried it and um, I think I need something more, then I'll go back to the motive question, why, why are you doing it, uh, and kind of walk them through that. If they're doing, if they're living life to the glory of God, then they'll keep doing it. So, uh, first time I had a men's Bible study at my little church in New Hampshire, um, it was, uh, was kind of like post-Promise Keepers world, you know, and we started doing this Bible study, and I started talking about simple stuff like love your wives, sacrificially, hey, let's serve our wives. And, and they were like, we tried that, it doesn't work. Like, they literally said it just like that. And I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't work? Like, well, we kept all seven promises, and she still doesn't A, B, and C. So they, oh, oh well, now we know why you did it. So that your wife would do A, B, and
2: C. Again, pragmatism, right? Yeah. (laughs) There has to be something deeper, something more permanent and lasting. Okay. Kind of along the same lines, that's a two-part question. So then, if a non-Christian comes in for counseling, are you still reaching for the Bible to the same extent? Is it just as prominent in your counseling? Yeah, it is.
0: And I will talk about their problems and show them how the Bible addresses that wisely and calls them to a certain way of thinking, and a certain way of responding and behaving. But I'm going to emphasize the gospel, right? So I I want them to hear again and again and again, they need spiritual transformation, they need spiritual life in order to embrace and truly adopt that way of thinking and and living to the glory of God. They need that spiritual life. They're not able to submit to the law, or they don't submit to the law of God, nor are they able to do so, Romans 8. I think verse 7 says, and so I'm pointing them to the gospel, but also showing them the wisdom of the word and how the word actually presents a standard that's unattainable on their own. And I just kind of use those back and forth as, you know, use their inability to keep God's word as a springboard to their need for the gospel, and I just kind of go back and forth until they get saved, which happens. I mean, it does happen. It doesn't always happen. But it does sometimes.
1: I have with my own eyes watched baptisms from that counseling center. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, okay. This question is about kind of tact, right? How do we live out life applying Scripture as a corrector, right? Um, so the question is is put it would likely be inappropriate to correct someone's sin if you've never had a conversation with them before. How well should a person know another Christian before they convict one another of sin? Would it even would it ever be would it ever be a situation in which it is inappropriate to biblically confront someone about their sin, such as a woman confronting a man, uh, confronting a pastor or elder, etc.? So it's about tact. Speak to that. Yeah.
0: yeah. So when when I when I'm
1: talking about the scripture is
0: useful for conviction, I'm not necessarily talking about that. Uh, approaching someone out of the blue and speaking into their life. Like, you got to have a certain kind of relationship with them. And and yes, you would be thinking, I'm not going to do this just for any and every sin. It's Probably if it's a pattern, I'm, I need to have a certain kind of relationship with them. I'm talking about just as we're doing life together, let's start talking truth that way to one another as people invite it. And I, so I'm encouraging you all to invite it. So just, just, I'll give you two quick examples. One, um, my, my wife is like notorious for coming up with weird diets. Sorry, honey. This isn't recorded, right? <laughs> I'm so busted. She's just notorious for coming up with these weird diets. And frankly, they frustrate me. It's not that I don't need them, it's that I don't like them. And it's that simple. So... Um, Sometime in the last year or two, I don't, I don't know what, what it was. It's not like a. It, I, don't, I just didn't like it, and I was just getting madder and madder and madder. Like I go home and like, oh great, soy cakes, love those. Um, or she's like, it's a zucchini squash or no spaghetti squash. It's just like noodles. No, it's not. It's nothing like noodles, right? So we've had these conversations and they didn't go well and I'm getting increasingly frustrated. So um, I sat down with two guys that I know and love and I'm like, you know what? I got a heart problem. I have a heart issue and I need help. Like, I'm really having a hard time figuring out why is this so important to me and, you know, how to respond to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And those two guys just they opened up the Word of God with me. They we, they talked about selfishness and they talked about my wife and her love for me and blah blah blah. We talked through it, and um, I'm still eating weird food, but um, I'm loving Jesus and loving my wife in the process. And so, um, strangely, the soy burger doesn't taste so bad anymore. <laughs> I don't know.
1: A little sriracha. Here we go. He had a very meaty burger on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. She
0: did tell me now, no cheese curds and brats. <laughs> First night out, brats stuffed with cheese curds, deep fried. I'm like, there's no way I'm confessing that when I get back.
2: When in Rome. Uh, We have two minutes. I think this one will be quick, though. One more question. When trying to counsel somebody, help them, encourage them with... uh, in accountability to the truth of scripture and the profession of their faith. How do you keep guard of falling into proof texting, uh, especially for more modern issues that they may be dealing with?
0: Yeah, that's that's hard. And um, I would encourage you to take Josh's hermeneutics class. That's step one, right? Just learn how to read your Bible and study your Bible and understand it in its context. And, and then just be careful to do that. And I think, the biblical counseling movement is getting better at not being a proof-texting type of, of movement. I think 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot of proof-texting materials out there, and they're, they're not always helpful. But yeah, it's just being a good student of the Word and uh,
1: and reading the Bible in its context. And, Can you just define proof-texting quick? What, what do you think of when you hear that phrase?
0: Uh, proof-texting is just taking a verse without really thinking through... What does it mean in its broader context? So, uh, an, ex- an example uh, let's see, uh, on a counseling issue, proof texting on a counseling issue.
1: Um, do not,
0: wait, how's the proverb? Oh, goodness. The proverb says, uh, don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? So it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to their folly, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Um, so you can take one half of that verse and say, I don't, I don't owe him an answer. God tells me not to answer him. Right? You just take the, the half of the verse you like. that tells you you don't have to, to do something and not really think about the whole context of, of what God's trying to teach us by drawing those nuances out between the two. So it's kind of like that.
2: Don't judge. Be another one. Yeah. Right? What, what more is there? What more is Christ saying? Okay. Thank you so much, Brian. We appreciate yeah. your time. And uh, look forward to being with you again tomorrow night at 630. Parents, please go retrieve your children. Uh, they are, are ready to go, I'm sure. And then there are no more time constraints. You can enjoy being Chatty Cathy's as long as you'd like.